You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Arya Cohen-Wade. I'm the host of Culturally Determined. And my guest today is Max Reed. Max, can you please introduce yourself? Max Reed. Um, I have a newsletter called Reed Max, which is, yes, a pun on my name. And I'm a former writer and editor for New York Magazine and Gawker, among other places. Uh, thanks for coming on. So congrats on launching the newsletter. And you have maybe the best newsletter title uh, possible out there. Um, and so the link that will be below, it, it, it's maxread.substack.com, although it's called Rebax. And um, and yeah, you were sort of uh, you're sort of out of the game, at least for a little bit. I missed seeing your byline. Um, so happy that you're writing it, writing again, because I, I think you're you know i i've always enjoyed your pieces and you were on a couple of years ago i just rushed to listen a little bit of it where we were talking about when kanye met trump in the oval office so that so that was like a simpler more innocent time um yeah <laughs> so i encourage people to check out your Substack where you're writing about tech and media but also just doing things more along your personal interests and including a, a very fun piece um that hopefully we'll get to talk about a little bit that was about uh, the category of movies, 90s, 90s dad thrillers, which you sort of um, label and categorize in various ways and is both like fun and maybe want to rewatch some of these movies like Air Force One and um, and, you know, all sorts of strange movies where like a normal person is somehow a normal man is somehow conscripted into like fighting, fighting evildoers. And uh, but we'll get we'll get to that. But we're going to start with a piece that you wrote that just came out recently. What happened to BuzzFeed? And that is not a there's not a question mark in there. It's a statement. What happened to BuzzFeed? And you explain it. And so BuzzFeed just had its IPO. And I guess it was disappointing um, because I don't know, it was mispriced or something. But it, people were maybe surprised by that, or maybe they shouldn't have been. But you you did an analysis of sort of the online media landscape um that I found really interesting. <laughs> and you've been in that world for a long time. So so what happened? Yeah, I mean, I think the you know at this point it would be it's probably not right to say like you know from 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 last week to or from two weeks ago to the BuzzFeed IPO disappointment is probably not the right word. It, I think they kind of did what everybody expected it to do, which is it debuted and it dropped a little bit, um, and there's a whole kind of uh, total mess with uh, employees, former employees who want to sell their shares and are unable to. It seems to just be a kind of um, I don't know, some level, some level of incompetency across several different institutions, including BuzzFeed. But, um, you know, compared with where we were 10 years ago or where BuzzFeed was 10 years ago, I think it's a huge disappointment. Um, I mean, I think the thing to remember is that um, they, according to all the best reporting, there was a billion dollar purchase offer on the table from Disney. That Disney wanted to buy BuzzFeed. This would have been in 2013, I think. And Jonah Peretti said no. Um, John Steinberg, who was the head of the business side of the operation at that time, left shortly afterwards, uh, basically over, over that um, uh, decision. I'm sort of, um, I, I don't know which, which parts of what I'm saying right now are just gossip and which parts of what I'm saying are like re reported things. So, but it's 10 years ago and it's media, so who gives a shit? Um, so, uh, but you know, the, the idea when you walk away from a billion dollar deal is that you are creating something that's going to be worth a lot more than that someday. And, you know, BuzzFeed's market cap is currently less than a billion dollars and its stock is trading at uh, five, somewhere between five and seven bucks right now. Um, and, you know, I think that, uh, I tried to avoid using this phrase in my piece, but you know, it's hard for me not to look at this as the kind of end of an era or like, let's say a capstone on a particular era. Um, I came of age professionally, um, you know, starting around 2009, 2010. Um, I started working at Gawker in 2010 and left in 2015. And those five years were among the most um, exciting, um, strange, dynamic, uh, but sort of optimistic years to be in digital media. Um, you know, you don't want to overrate the kind of feeling like it was, it could be a punishing and brutal job. Um, and it was precarious for people who were on the lowest rungs of the ladder, but there was a huge amount of Silicon Valley money that was being invested in at the time. Um, I mean, relatively huge. Um, you know, uh, uh, the reason for that being basically that, you know, the, the sort of infrastructure of media distribution was changing. It had changed from, um, 
10 years previously, you know, the invention of the iPhone, the invention of Facebook, um, of Twitter, uh, had all changed how people were getting news, um, media of all kinds. And there was a lot of investors who said, okay, well, we can make money off of this. Um, and, you know, this story has been told a lot. So you, people who are sort of familiar with the media business have heard it said a million times before. But, you know, basically between 2010 and 2014, um, Facebook by itself uh, increased the amount of traffic to a bunch of media websites by an order of magnitude, essentially. That it just sort of, because Facebook had such a huge user base and because it, it, it had captured that user base so effectively, it could start to send traffic to us all over the place. It was very easy at the time to sort of, think to yourself, well, uh, I am, this is the way it's going to be forever. I mean, you could certainly, if you were talking to an investor, that's what you would say, you know, like forever and ever, we're going to be getting hundreds of millions of users every year. Millions of people are going to be looking at this stuff. Like we are the new New York times. Um, and Buzzfeed at this point was kind of the, uh, the most obsessed over property in that, um, collection of new digital media spaces. Um, you know, the, the New York Times sort of famously put together a big digital strategy memo, um, basically at, uh, you know, thanks to BuzzFeed's runaway success. Um, you know, the sort of the, the most prestigious publication in the country is looking at BuzzFeed and thinking, well, what are we doing that this meme factor is not? Um, was, and so was for that BuzzFeed, the thing that Was that the thing that the younger Salzberger was spearheading, that, yeah. that thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, who is that? It was I have, he's now the publisher. I heard a name that I'm totally forgetting. Now. Yeah, it was. Yeah, he is now the I've, publisher. Um, and yeah, and then it's funny to think how the relative, you know, maybe seven or eight years ago, the New York Times saw like BuzzFeed. This rearview mirror was like, oh, we, these guys are overtake us, and for various reasons, maybe we can discuss. You know, now that the New York Times is once again a behemoth. I, I mean, it's not a publicly traded company, so I don't. Know if it has like a public valuation, but um, or but I guess it does have it has this like weird stock system that's I don't understand or something. So maybe maybe it's possible to say, but um, you know, it, it's it, New York Times is now much more consolidated and powerful than it was a decade ago, and BuzzFeed is not yeah. <laughs> has not become you know Disney. And actually, you have a I'm just gonna read a, a couple lines from from the piece. You say, uh, "Boy, what a decade it's been." Ten years ago, when I still worked at Gawker, digital media was becoming a hot target for investments. And blogging began to seem less like a doomed and precarious endeavor, or more like a potential staple, if not wildly well remunerated career. Uh, the people who signed the checks took for granted that legacy media companies were done, that digital media companies would build the future, and no one knew precisely what it would look like. And then you jump ahead a little bit, and you actually link to a piece that you wrote for Gawker with Leah Finnegan, who is now the editor chief of the rebooted Gawker talking about various media brands from 2014. I, I glanced at that, and there was a couple, I, I didn't even remember their names. So some of them have vanished entirely, and then there's some <laughs> other ones that have moved up in the world. Um, and then you talk about how there's been this incredible amount of consolidation within online media, such that you label four major like conglomerates, uh, which are BuzzFeed, HuffPost, Complex, Vox, Verge, SB Nation, Eater, New York Magazine, Bustle, Mike Gawker, and Vice Refinery 29. And so where there once a bit what would have been 20 or so, now there's four. And and there it seems like you're you are arguing the piece that sort of like the fact that the BuzzFeed stock went down instead of going up means that further consolidation within the industry is going to be coming. And maybe it'll just be like two giant conglomerates controlling online, all online media. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sort of stealing this thesis from um, a newsletter called The Diff. But, uh, you know, Jonah Peretti, who's the founder and CEO of BuzzFeed, has been saying for a long time um, that consolidation is the only path forward for digital media companies, uh, basically because in order for you to get your foot in the door with advertisers, to compete with um, companies the size of Facebook and Twitter, to have the kind of diversified sort of revenue streams and audience that allows you to weather changes in algorithm changes in the economy, all kinds of things, you need to be as big as you can possibly get. Um, and, uh, you know, it's easier to consolidate like that when you are a publicly traded company, because you can make offers in stock, you can like, you can buy companies um, by giving them some stock. Um, so that's, I think that's one reason that uh, BuzzFeed is, that's one reason why it was important for BuzzFeed to go public. Um, but, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the, the kind of paradox here is that, the thesis about consolidation is proven 
uh, in particular by BuzzFeed stock doing poorly, which makes it also sort of more difficult to make offers and to play the suitor and to, um, to purchase companies. Um, you know, so in the in the short term, it certainly doesn't look great for BuzzFeed, but I think in the medium and long term, like this does probably position it best to lead a bunch of acquisitions, uh, necessary acquisitions. I mean, I'll, I'll note like in the time between I published that between in the time between when I published that newsletter and when we're having this conversation, Box slash New York Mag slash Eater um, just announced that it had purchased Group Nine, which is the company that owns the Dodo and Thrillist and Pop Sugar and a couple other brands. Um, so, you know, like that's, this is just going to keep happening. Um, and, uh, you know, like I say in the piece, like, I, I don't know that this is necessarily the most it's sort of depressing, but it's not necessarily pessimistic. I, I think that, you know, a cut, there are probably two or three that will survive in the long term, and they will provide relatively stable careers for people who stick around for them. I'm not, I don't personally worry about like some huge culling of jobs across the industry, especially because most of these shops are unionized now. So at the very least, there's some level of um, worker say in the decisions that are being made. But uh, it's not the thing that keeps striking me. And the thing that I think was at the core of what I wanted to write about was the shift in sort of tone and uh, glamour almost. I don't want to pretend that we were, you know, bloggers were glamorous in 2011, but, um, it, you know, it was a different kind of job and it was a different kind of industry and it's, it's it, whatever it was back then. It certainly isn't anymore. Right. Well, uh, glamour is interesting and uh, yeah, I, I, I was working at Gawker, probably not glamorous, but you could say there was some sort of mystique or something to it such that people, really want to do it. And then you you link to this piece that I, that has stuck with me ever since it was published. And it was a a um a, a woman writing a letter to like a self-help sort of thing or advice columnist about how she hated her life because she didn't work for BuzzFeed. And um and that is yeah. an emblematic letter from a certain era. And I and I, I remember after I read that, I was like, God, this woman needs to talk to a therapist like she seems to be deeply depressed and like, you know, displacing all of her mental problems onto this. The fact that she doesn't work for BuzzFeed, but it's impossible to imagine someone writing something like that, even though that was like a weird outlier today. And then like does. And so, you know, yourself and many other people who once were employed by a site like this, you know, Glenn Greenwald will be one of them um, and Matt Iglesias and other such people. They now are on Substack. And does Substack have a glamour or a mystique or something? It, it's weird because anyone can do it uh, in some respect, but it's at least the hot thing <laughs> somehow. I mean, I've been writing I've been writing about I think there's probably like a couple different ways to answer that. I think that like definitely in terms of and let's just you know, we're, we're talking vibes now, Arya. This is like a vibes conversation in terms of like energy. I think subsects kind of where a lot of like editorial energy is going, where there's a lot of interesting people. I like I, I will say without even being a homer for the platform, given that I am currently on it, that I have found more new writers uh, and interesting voices on subsect than I have. Uh, you know, over the three or four years previously, you know, it, it just yeah. feels like, I mean, the, something I miss a lot about, let's say something I miss a lot about the late 2000s, early 2010s era of internet writing is something that I hope that, you know, blogging heads uh, listeners would, would appreciate and remember is there was just <laughs> this huge flowering of people you'd never heard of uh, talking about stuff that you didn't know anything about. Um, it was, it was a, an amazing place to like sort of learn. And I think Substack has some of that energy, that sort of early blogging. I mean, I'm not the first person to say this either. Like, it's probably a cliche about Substack at this point. But I think that what Substack doesn't have that I can see really is a, um, and this is where I'm going to start to sound like really old and corny, uh, but like, there's no like youthful energy to it. Like, I think that what Gawker had and what BuzzFeed even did to some extent, though it was a kind of particularly corny, youthful energy was a sense that this was what interesting, smart, cool, like people in their early 20s were doing. Um, you know, obviously it was like, if you were actually cool, you weren't blogging, you were doing something else, but there was like a coolness to it. Um, and I don't think Substack really has that. I, you know, I think, yeah, I, I think sort of, there's a lot, there's clearly a lot of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of would be coolness in like web three creating. I have a sort of crackpot theory that like a huge amount of what made early blog, blogs so good in 
I'm talking about Gawker, Jezebel, even the New York Mags early blogs, was you had a lot of freelance writing talent of that was essentially comedians and comedy writers who couldn't find work elsewhere. And so were willing to mm. do funny things for the blogs. And I say that because I remember starting in the sort of mid 2000s when I was trying to hire writers for Gawker, I was finding constantly that writers whose work I had come across and who had really strong voices and who I liked a lot had were all trying to get jobs in TV. Um, and in fact, that there were now a ton of thanks, I think, to like Netflix and and all the streaming services, there were a ton of jobs on TV. No way of proving this theory, but my theory is basically that like the rise of streaming services and the expansion of TV jobs meant that there was a lot of writing talent went to where the money was and disappeared from where the money wasn't, which was essentially news media. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, and there and uh, Court Jefferson is one person. Well, he wasn't he at Gawker, and he it's now a, he became a TV writer. I mean, there's a lot TV of writer. a lot of bloggers who are TV writers, and it's the other way around too, where it's like people who probably who wrote a handful of blogs became, you know, uh, Julian Smolinski, who um, is uh, like a wonderful TV writer, extremely funny woman who has been writing for Grace and Frankie for years. She she was like a really common byline across New York Mag and the Gawker blogs for a long time. And the kind of person who I think of when it was like, you know, that was the kind of thing you could read, very funny, professionally funny people writing stuff, you know, off the cuff that, uh, now it's it's that not that it's easy, but it's that much easier to get a job as a staff writer, um, you know, for a Netflix show or Hulu show or whatever. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. And just in terms of vibes, and so non scientific, yeah, uh, Substack seems more uh, older millennial Gen X friendly, and the name and uh, Greenwald, um, Iglesias, Andrew Sullivan, all all Gen X, and people who came up through the early blogosphere went into some establishment. I mean, you know, Sullivan is somewhat different because he was like the 26 year old editor of the New Republic. But, you know, early bloggers went yeah. to mainstream media and now leaving to do their own thing. And then the cool young people. Well, I don't I don't know. I don't I have no association with young people or cool people, but I would think they are maybe doing TikTok uh, podcasts, which, you know, somewhat similar to, to Substack is like unconstrained by an editor or any institution and yeah and so that's where the like the youthful energy maybe is uh, does that make sense to you yeah i think so i mean i think that i i, I can't believe i didn't mention podcasts because i think that's the other like as you just said podcast is the other totally the place where a huge amount of like talent that would otherwise that it had it had it emerged in 2009 2010 would have been blogging prime sort of blogging talent is doing podcasts now and which is uh, 100% understandable. Um, not that it's easier. It's just like, it's a, it's a, it's, it's obvious. It's a lot easier to make money off of a Patreon than, uh, for a podcast that you're doing than it is to like make money as a freelance writer for a bunch of different publications right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, so even, it's, it's, it's different, different skill sets for sure. And you know, there's a type yeah. of person who yeah. loves, who, lo who loves writing and doesn't want to speak out loud, you know, on, on, on uh, yeah, I mean, for for sure. a microphone or something. Um, and yeah, and I I certainly feel more comfortable at this point in my life babbling into a microphone than you know writing yeah. uh, polished prose or sorry, semi polished prose that would be published on a blog like fifteen or ten or fifteen years ago, or I guess maybe more like five to ten years ago. Sure. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, okay. And so here's so one company that you did not mention when you named your four conglomerates is G G slash O Media. Is that how you say it? or just G O Media, which is the remnants <laughs> of Gawker? And, I, and we we couldn't yeah. put it. It's not on the level of one of those, but I've just, do you have any idea what is happening with Go Media? And it's I like I joked on Twitter recently as far as I can that it was like some sort of internal plot to like ruin the company and like drive it into bankruptcy was was like being um, you know there was like psychopaths within the company who are trying to destroy it from within. That's the only thing I can explain for these like the driving away all their talent. They did this bizarre thing where they eliminated all the images from onion articles before like 2019. So that's like, you know, yeah. years and years of of like effort put put in by photo editors and designers and stuff. It's, it's just seemingly all gone to save space on like the server or something. It just it's utterly baffling. It's I mean, I, from what I can tell, and I'm not an expert in this stuff, but it it seems like a very classic sort of even stereotypical private equity play that um, the, I can't remember the name of the company that owns Geo, but it was purchased by a private equity firm. And 
the way I understand private equity works, especially with media, is you basically you take an asset like a local newspaper or a, a network of blogs that there are some obvious costs you can shave without taking too big of a hit to your revenue in the short term. And you sort of do that to like, you know, to um, squeeze as much blood from the stone as you possibly can. You get as many profits and then you sell it on again, or maybe you just slowly wind it down in the medium to long term. Um, you know, I, I want to be careful here, like, cause I don't, I don't like, I think they're like the, the super stereotypical version is like, yeah, they're just, they don't give a shit. They're going to make five years worth of money out of it and then like sell it and walk away. And I don't think it's quite how it works, but I think it's basically like the, the game is how little can we spend on the, like in this company to make, to continue making like money off of it. And that's why like, it just is basically incompetently run. I mean, it's incompetently run on the tech side, all the images experience incompetently run on the editorial side. It just sucks. Now it's incompetently run on the advertising side. It's, um, you know, like if you try to load those sites, they're just like caked with ads. It's impossible. You know, they, they, they start the fan on your computer immediately. Um, yeah. So you know, for, for, people, of, for, for people that don't know, the, this is the remnants of Gawker after Gawker went into bankruptcy and then Gawker basically like headline Gawker or the main site sort of turned to something called Splinter and then Splinter uh, everyone was like folded and then they destroyed Deadspin and all the Deadspin writers quit and formed a lot of them went to this site they formed themselves with that was owned jointly called Defector. And then there was a piece a couple of weeks ago at Gawker about how like 75% of Jezebel's writers had left. And it just seems like, you know, they have all these um, and th something else with the onion, they were forcing all the onion writers. The onion has been located in Chicago for a, a very long time, like over a decade. They were like forcing all of them to move to Los Angeles. And this, sorry, this is the onion AV club um, yeah. because, because like that's where Hollywood is. And it, it just seemed like, they're making like they're just driving out the talent because you have to pay talented people a bit more than minimum wage. And and yeah, so yeah. that it does seem like blood from a stone kind of thing. And then there'll be some husk and it'll be like thought catalog or something in the end, like just generating a little revenue from like confused people clicking on it or, or, or something. So it's it's just right. It's, it's, it's depressing, I guess. Uh, but many things in media, yeah, <laughs> like media, at least are depressing. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Anything else on this topic before we move to another what are the pieces that you've written recently? No, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Defector. I mean, it's about the only bright spot I can think of uh, in terms of just having like the kind of classic, funny, interesting, bright, you know, sort of surprising content that you used to be able to expect from blogs in general, um, that they are a successful company. It's a sustainable writer's co-op. Um, I encourage listeners who haven't heard of it to check it out if you like sports, even if you don't like sports, because they cover a lot of different things. But it's it's work. It's like owned by the guys who left the the men and women who left Deadspin, and um, it's they are they're doing a really good job with it. Um, Not going to buy anything anytime soon, but it's a good site. Yeah, and maybe that you know the model, and so you you also you you know the previous the ten ten seven to ten to twelve years ago, it was like the venture capital era in media, and now it's the private equity uh era and so before <laughs> it was it was a bubble and things were invested in on like a one in a hundred sort of you know with venture capital you'd only need a couple successes uh that are super successes yeah. and then all, all your failures you know 97 failures get wiped out if you invested in a site that becomes a billion dollar whatever that you know that is rare you're not going to get many billion dollar things in media not even buzzfeed um and and now, yeah now it's more like the um you know the penny pinchers and squeezing squeezing and leaving the desiccated husk um sort of sort of era so there's like a rational exuberance in that and now you know like the yeah exactly green eye shade like sociopaths are like cutting them <laughs> um that's how, at least that's how it seems from the outside okay so you wrote yeah. a, a piece called is web3 bullshit and the subhead is is that even the right question and um and yeah and so Web3, there's probably people who, who have seen that term and don't know what it means or have never even heard before. So and part of the piece is trying to de define what Web3 is in some way. And um, so, well, yeah. So what is Web3 and is Elon Musk right that it's bullshit? <laughs> um, so Web3 is like I think the most neutral basic definition is that it is the coming era of the Internet on the blockchain. 
Um, so the idea is it's everything you know and love and possibly all the stuff you hate about the internet now, but it's built on the blockchain, which is, of course, the sort of um, software framework that uh, was invented to create Bitcoin. Um, and the idea is it's like a distributed, unfakeable, unchangeable ledger um, that tells you who owns what uh, in a given system. Um, you know, I think like in, like when I say it's the web on the blockchain, the fact that that's vague, I think, to people who are pushing Web3 is a feature, not a bug. Um, it, it, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways, I think maybe the like accurate definition is it's a kind of rebranding of crypto for humanities majors. Um, you know, I'm not sure that there's anything going on. It's not clear to me there's anything going on with Web3 such as it is that's really any different from what Bitcoin um, in enthusiasts were promising and suggesting as far back as 2012. Um, you know, the big development has been uh, the sort of smart contract framework of uh, Ethereum, um, which is which just basically allows you to take a certain number of sort of blockchain concepts and apply them beyond just the idea of a currency so that you can create groups that are governed by contracts that trigger based on software. And so the promise there is that, you know, like you and I, we start a, a, a group, a decentralized autonomous organization, as they're called, and um, we set up basically a constitution for it and things that, and, and we don't have to worry about trusting each other because the software constitution will trigger based on whatever changes are going on. Um, and I think, you know, all of this sounds like even, even I'm boring myself, even as I'm saying it out loud, you know, and I think that if you're a, if you're an English major, like I was say, or if you're like an artist or a musician or somebody, a lot of this sounds, it's like hard to kind of understand how that power, why that helps you. And I think a lot of what Web3 is, it's, it's, a, it's like a set of ideas and a framework for thinking about the blockchain that makes it attractive to people who can create cool cultural objects. Um, and like really specifically what I think it, what it, that, what the attractiveness is that it promises people the ability to make money from creating art um, or from doing positive things, um, which is like, you know, if you're a musician online, like that, there's not a lot of ways to make money. And, and or if you're an artist online, there's not a lot of ways to make money. And so if you, if, if you associate web three with the ability to sell your art and to make money, that's great. Um, and if you uh, are, you know, and also, if you are somebody who just likes to make money, then it all sounds great. But I, possibly I've already like, like, it's so funny to me because I, I'm I, it, so much of what you think about what doing what you what a person understands about it um, depends on how closely or, or distantly they've been following cryptocurrency or internet culture at all over the last 10 years. So it's possible I'm even in just trying to give this shallow definition, I'm already out in the deep end for some, what, as what is for some people the total deep end. And they're just okay, well, I'll, yeah, okay. So I'm, you know, in the, I'm definitely in the, kiddie pool in terms of my understanding of this but okay so so the distributed whatever whatever is also dao and you, you wrote an explainer on dao mm -hmm. a couple of months ago right so we'll include the link to yeah. that and then it, it maybe the first time this broke through into the public consciousness in any way was a group of people assembled to try to bid for a copy of the a, a original copy of the u.s constitution or was it declaration of independence um yeah it was definitely the constitution right oh no it was constitution okay uh, at no it was the constitution yeah. Okay. At Sotheby's or something, and um, and so I guess it was a way that they could all agree to put money in, and but the money wouldn't be stolen by a scammer that maybe would have happened if this sort of effort had been tried ten years ago or something. But the, and then they ended up not winning, so just some rich asshole ended up outbidding them. But they had they said somehow assembled forty million dollars from people, both putting in a lot of money or like fifty dollars or something, and then they were going to vote on what to do with it. Yeah. Um, so I, there's some sort right. of like, it, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's somehow like has at least under the idea that there could be like a democratic element, like everyone has to agree to something or 50% or more have to agree to something. And then that triggers something to happen instead of just like a yeah. central authority making these decisions. Is, is that all more or less right? Yeah, that's, that's totally right. I mean, it's very similar, you know, a DAO, which I think is the current. So if I can, uh, you know, at the risk of overcomplicating things. But I think the, the sort of the era of Web3, the interest in Web3 really kicked off with the NFT craze earlier this year, which I assume that even the most kind of blockchain skeptical have heard of, that the idea, you know, the idea of purchasing um, artificially scarce digital art 
there was this huge market for it. There kind of still is. It's not quite as big as it used to be. The next wave of sort of that was the if that was the first wave of kind of Web three um, implementation or publicity or whatever you would want to say. The next wave is this idea of the DAO, of the the DAO, the decentralized autonomous organization, and you know it's a it's a kind of it's a difficult thing to sort of wrap your arms around, or it, it, maybe I should say it's not like. It, on the one hand, it looks and feels basically like a joint stock corporation. I mean, that's what it is. You have um, a organization that everybody is bought into based on cryptographic token, on cryptocurrency tokens uh, on the blockchain. And based on the number of tokens you own, um, depending on how the DAO is structured, you get to vote on actions that it would take, which is you know, more or less how a joint stock corporation uh, works. And just like a joint stock corporation, you can sell your tokens the same way you can sell socks like on the open market. Um, where it sort of differs, I suppose, I mean, where it differs, one, is that it's not regulated. Like, uh, you know, at some point, it seems very clear the SEC is going to consider these tokens securities uh, or wants to consider them securities. And so it will get regulated the way um, an LLC, like any any kind of public corporation would. Um, but the kind of the culture of it uh, pushes the cooperative aspect much more than, you know, than your average Fortune 500. 500 company um, for obvious reasons. Um, so, you know, I think the, like it helped, you want to think about it a little bit as a, as a joint stock corporation, you want to think about it a little bit as like a co-op of some kind, um, you know, and then you also probably want to think about it a little bit as a pyramid scheme um, because <laughs> right now it's like, it's nobody is quite sure what to do with any of these things. You know, the constitution DAO is that you're talking about garnered a ton of attention and it got a ton of money and then it couldn't even buy the constitution. And so it's sort of like they had $40 million just sitting on the blockchain somewhere. And then they, you know, the part of the whole stupid thing was they had to they tried to return the money and, and it's very expensive to transfer money right now on the blockchain. So a lot of people lost their money. Um, but well, I, know, I didn't I, even, I didn't hear that aspect of it. So, so, so people <laughs> yeah. who put in a thousand dollars thinking that they were purchasing one, 100,000 of a share in, in a copy of the U S constitution, they're not getting their money back. They're getting some of it back, but it took a while and they lost a lot of it because, it, like I said, it costs a lot of money to transfer money on the blockchain right now. You know, I mean, look, I think even the most it, the most the deepest Web3 adherents would tell you that this is not it is not ready for prime time in the sense that there's just not like you're not going to get a regular person to buy a to download a cryptocurrency wallet, to learn their hash, to like understand how to do it. And then even if you get them to do all those things, if you then you tell them that in order to spend one hundred dollars on the blockchain, you might have to also spend $125 in fees to spend that $100. Like, I mean, I lost, I've already lost like 50 bucks trying to do stuff myself because I didn't understand it. And even now that I do understand it, like, you know, just trying to like familiarize myself with the technology, I'm, I'm spending on more money than I absolutely, than I should. And I, I'm, I run a newsletter. I, there's no way for me to get reimbursed on any of this. Yeah, this, that's okay. Yeah. Okay. You're taking, you're taking the hit in order to spread knowledge to the normal people. I mean, yeah. There's parts of it, I don't know, I like a couple of years ago, I would have said, well, this all seems like stupid and a joke, you know, the, the crypto world. And I, and obviously, like if if I had bought, you know, so if I put $100 into Bitcoin three years ago, I would now have like $1,000 or something like like it, it, the prices gyrate, but it, Bitcoin itself has become, you know, massively valuable. And then it'll drop 20% and then it like goes back up 15%. And I don't know, it seems insane, but like. It's somewhere between like, yeah, a pyramid scheme or like musical chairs or something or like hot potato or, you know, someone's got it seems like someone has to be left carrying the bag because ultimately this is seems yeah. to have no true value. I, mean, I, I don't know. Um, but but in terms of like stuff like the there is self like executing contracts and stuff, it's like and something that is sort of like a joint stock corporation. Like, well, there actually is something that enforces contracts like pretty well and that's like the u.s legal system and like that you get and with as many problems like if if two people pull up a con like sign a contract and get it notarized or whatever and then uh one of them violates it like you know it will you know they can go to court and like get the original contract enforced more more or less and then there's no risk of like the money being stolen by a hacker or or something like yeah. that so they're like trying to somehow right Fludge together like systems that you know English common law sort of like figured out you know <laughs> hundreds of years ago, and I, that's what it seems to me at least. Uh, am I misunderstanding it or? Yeah, I, no, I think I mean look, I think that um, 
the critique that it is reverse, basically reverse engineering, like the, the financial system that has taken five or 600 years to get going um, is, is probably true. Um, I think, uh, let me, let me try and like, uh, there, there, I mean, you know, as you said, one thing that the, that, that the U S court system actually manages to do, I mean, it's not just, you know, like there is like, I'm always a little bit baffled by the theory of power that is involved in blockchain people. Like I understand, I don't have any illusions about the court system. I understand that what guarantees it is that the U S government has an army. Like there is like there the violence at the bottom there. And so when people are like, no, no, the software controls it. I'm like, but like, like, does the software have a gun? Does the software have a tank? Does it have a, a you know, it's we might be heading I several mean, we might be heading there. in the Pacific. <laughs> well, um, no, I mean, you know, there is a kind it, of either Mao said or Mao was t- apparently, um, you know, people attribute that Mao said political f- power flows from the barrel of a gun. And yeah, ultimately, like right. all, you know, all law and government power flows from the monopoly monopoly of force and such that right. you know, the government but, will like your say, wages or something if you break a contract or, or yeah. something along those lines. And you can't like right. go I mean but what I will say is that there is there is a um you know Bitcoin has managed for now 10 12 years to be an effective store of value. You know, obviously it's got a long way to go before it matches the dollar in terms of that. But there is an element of this where it's just the belief is there, the belief is real, the belief is strong. And that's with money, a lot of the time that's all that really matters. You know, it's it's you just have to take on faith that it's gonna be worth something. JP Koenig, who's a um a writer and a um uh a researcher who writes about money, um, he's compared Bitcoin to a chain letter um of the kind, you know, I don't want to say scam, but like a chain letter where you basically uh you know, you receive a letter. And uh, it says, you know, if you, God, I'm not going to be able to do this, right? I mean, basically what you're doing is you're saying, like, uh, I am I am taking on this thing, this object, this Bitcoin, based on the belief that I will be able to sell it for more money at some point in the future. And the fact that it's worked for 10 years is a pretty impressive, I don't think we should diminish how impressive, like, a feat that is. It's got, as I say, it's got a long way to go before it will be able to continue doing that. It makes it slightly different from what its intent, original intention was, was to be used as like currency in place of the dollar. Um, right. But you can see like where the reason I bring all this up is because I think the place, as you sort of hint at in your earlier question, I think the place that Web3 seems to have some obvious set of uses is in the world of finance. Um, and I think maybe some of that is, you know, so-called regulatory arbitrage that basically they're they're using um, uh, Web3 tools, what they call DeFi or decentralized finance. To make gobs of money before the SEC is able to come in and and like properly regulate them, but you know my understanding is that there are there, are, and I'm not going to be able to come up with any examples because I this is a world I know very little about. But people I trust seem to think that there are specific financial tools that are just better done on and with the blockchain. Um, you know, uh, whether that ends up being the case in the long term is an open question. You know, uh, there's a there's a good piece by Steve Randy Waldman that. Um, I recommend people read where he basically makes the case, you know, the big debate, and this is between people for who, who think that Web3 is, just to go back to the title of my of my newsletter, who think that Web3 is total bullshit, that nothing's ever going to happen with it, the technology is vaporware, that the promises being made about it are, are nothing. And there's people who think that it's the future of all humankind and all human organization, and the, the whole world is going to be reorganized around the blockchain. And Waldman's basic argument is that it's not the, the technology is not bullshit, that there is a there there, that there are things that you can do with this that uh, are new and interesting and worthwhile, but that it's not so it's, it's unlikely that it's going to revolutionize the way the entire world works, that it's a lot more likely that what you get is the integration of certain blockchain concepts, blockchain software um, uh, and, and token ideas to the financial system that already exists. And I think arguably we're kind of already along that path you know there's this was a this this year and last year was a year when a lot of major financial institutions bought up cryptocurrency um and one thing that a lot of sort of crypto skeptics have noted in the last few months is that bitcoin now basically follows the market that you it's no longer a, a useful hedge against um the against your investments because it rises with the market and it falls with the market and maybe it's a hedge against inflation or something but at some point it's like I don't know what, like, like why I personally, as as a guy who just needs to save for retirement, would put money into Bitcoin instead of uh, an index fund. It's not at all clear to me. Yeah, and the, I mean, 
yeah, the sort of like the the like libertarian ethos of that Bitcoin seemed to have like been um, founded with of the, like no central authority, no central bank, no central government um, printing the money or something. I don't know. It, it seems that I've gotten very far away from that. I mean, it's just it's it's a store of value. I mean, it seems like a speculative asset to me that rises or falls based on, um, you know, uh, the the madness of crowds and if like the Ch Chinese state government says they're going to kick out all the people who are mining it and then it falls 20 percent. So if you would put your money in an index fund, you know, it wouldn't be um, it, or even if you just kept cash <laughs> under the mattress or something, it's not and you live in a stable government, it's not going to go down and value 20 percent in uh, one day or something. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's all it's all very strange. But um, did you see the latest nft news that broke just a couple hours ago um on december 16th that melania trump is getting into the nft game um no i mean i can't say i'm surprised i mean i'm only surprised it took her so long yeah well you know she's long been a patron of the arts and um yeah so it's, it's very strange mm -hmm. um it's it's real uh she tweeted from her official account she's doing something uh an nft of her eyes uh, and her eyes are cobalt blue according to the press release and uh, iconic enough okay. that people are somehow going to buy this but there was something strange about it where it seemed like it was it, the, the whole thing as i understood with nfts was like each one was individualized and then it you know mm. so with all this weird crap you see on twitter with like uh animals with like different hats and different tattoos and stuff so each one was a little different but then if they're trading on melania trump's famous you know, piercing cobalt blue eyes, and then see like there's that you can only make one of those. So I was a little unclear about this, but maybe there's just like different shades of blue or something. Anyway, the Trumps are getting into the crypto game, yeah. And so that either either indicates that like, you know, the future is smooth sailing for crypto, or like okay, the grifters and sort of like the mid level grifters are getting in, and so now it's it like the bubble is really gonna pop pretty soon because, you know. The, like they're really appealing to the real morons who who want to buy Melania's uh, cobalt blue eye NFT at this point. Yeah. So you know probably the smart investor should try to liquidate as best they can. I mean, I, I, I it's not just Melania. I mean, the thing that is kind of getting to me uh, is the celebrities, athletes. I mean, Michael Jordan now has some kind of NFT thing. They just announced Reese Witherspoon announced a couple weeks. I mean, when I say I don't. I, I, I have no idea if Reese Witherspoon has any clue what an NFT is, if she even knows that she was tweet that her account was tweeting about NFTs. Like, you know, I think there's a lot of sort of celebrity money out there looking for ways to trade on fame, and the NFT craze is a pretty good one. It, I, I to me, yes, I, I would take that as a sign to get out. Melania, like all this, it just doesn't seem sustainable to me. And like, look, frankly, like the art sucks too. I have always thought of myself as a kind of like um postmodern you know theory guy it's sort of like oh no like the quality of art is based on cultural whatever but actually the nft thing has convinced me the opposite because i think partly just in the sense no, that it's it, like, it, there are the objectivity of aesthetics has been proven because you can see that the art that nft collectors <laughs> trade is so i mean bad. maybe i'm just getting old <laughs> right <laughs> well i think part of like maybe i should put it this way it's it, like setting aside the objective quality it's like you know contemporary art for all that it, it itself alongside nfts is a is a sort of party for money laundering and um kind of financial chicanery you can trace its its, its lineage from from you know literally millennia of, 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 of not just Western, but global art. And it's not that NFTs don't have some relationship to uh, like, like art elsewhere around the world, but in the context of like social one-upsmanship, like it's one thing to go buy a George Kondo or, uh, you know, a uh, Damien Hurst or whatever um, to impress um, the, the pretty young thing who has a art history degree or whatever, but like, who are you going to impress with your absolutely hideous, like street art inflected, like, you know, like ape babe or whatever. Um, but look, as I, as I say this, like clearly some people are impressed. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that in order for me to feel like NFTs have a real future, I think they need to like, like 
connect themselves a little bit more with the kind of general flow of high culture, because I think that's where that's like art is an effective money laundering scheme because it locks in like it, it, it you know, you can plug it into like the way rich people want to think of themselves and how they want to be around themselves. And NFTs just like, again, we're going off vibes here, but NFTs just sort of scream poser to me. They just scream sued. Like you just, that's dumb people like these. That's what it seems like. Yeah. And so I want to mention something that, so I, I taped an episode yesterday with David Reese, who hosts Election Profit Makers. And we talked a little bit about Elon Musk because he's obsessed with them. And I commented, I can't believe Elon Musk hasn't made his own cryptocurrency or NFT or something because his audience seems so aligned with that. And then I, the next day I read your piece. I saw somehow I missed that Elon Musk said that Web3 is bullshit. And, but it, you know, if he just changes his mind with that, surely he can make like a billion dollars selling the Elon coin or whatever to his rabid following oh, yeah. base. So it is, that is somewhat strange that this guy who sort of has this like huckster, like populist, um, you know, online, like, 420 is 69 is funny, like epic beacon kind of thing is just for whatever reason, thinks that Web3 is bullshit. And so it's not cashed in um, uh, by making, you know, the Elon, whatever, you know, Elon coin or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. So it, it's all very strange. Um, well, he did. He, I mean, he was you remember he earlier this year, he was playing around with Bitcoin. He would say he was saying we're going to buy a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin from Tesla. And then like three weeks later, he was like, actually, Bitcoin is really bad for the environment. So we're not going to do that. Oh, right, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure he made a ton of money and Tesla made a ton. I mean, it seems like he's he doesn't need his own cryptocurrency because he's just he can do this. He can do whatever he would do with the crypto story. He can do with Tesla stock and with the Bitcoin that he holds, basically. That's true. Um, and, which and is, I mean, as the, the Matt Levine, Elon Musk theory of, 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 uh, of markets. I mean, he is one of the co-founders of PayPal, like like cryptocurrency seems like trying to dethrone PayPal. But, you know, PayPal works pretty well. And like it, it takes like one point eight percent or something cut. And then when you compare it to all the bizarre externalities of cryptocurrency, like the waste of electricity and the fact that you might have to pay one hundred fifty dollars to withdraw your hundred dollars, like maybe like. We should yeah. just like tax PayPal more, regulate it more. But it, like they basically <laughs> did it. And, and, all the, and all the banks have their own versions of PayPal, like, you know, like like Bank of America, something called Zelle. Yeah. And, and so like it's sort of like this problem has been yeah. more or less solved. And Elon Musk played a key role in in that. So so I guess he sort of has a vested interest. Yeah, I don't know totally. if he still has PayPal stock, but he, he you know, he, <laughs> he has a vested interest in like the old regime not being toppled. Right. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So, okay, let's let's talk about um, well, okay, let's skip over cancel culture because I've talked about that too much on this. You've, ta- you've talked about it way too, we've all talked about it way too. Yeah, much. but you do have a good piece. <laughs> well, I'll just mention the piece is cancel culture over over that I think makes some salient points and people should check it out. But let's end talking about this piece that you wrote that I, I really loved. I thought it was really fun and sent it to multiple people saying you got to check this out. 90s dad thrillers a list. So this, this is not have to do with your normal beat, but uh, so since you're, you know, <laughs> in the uh, subspace, <laughs> substack space, you can write whatever you want without anyone uh, canceling you or whatever, or or even just saying don't write this. But you, <laughs> but it's a great piece. It's all about a genre of movies that sort of grew in the '80s and '90s and then faded away after 9/11 that you categorize as '90s dead thrillers. Um, so can, can you talk about this piece? Yeah. Um... So I should say first that I was actually inspired to write this by a podcast that anybody who finds this stuff interesting should listen to, which is John Gans and Jamel Bowie's podcast, uh, Unclear and Present Dangers. Um, I so my I, I had a kid last year. My son was born in November. He just turned one last month. And um, when he was after he was born, you know, I spent a lot of time staying up late or, or having to be up at and around at weird hours. I was getting very little sleep. Um, and there's, you know, you spend a lot of time just sort of like holding your baby and, um, what better thing to do when you do that and watch movies, but because you're so messed up and so weird, whatever, I wanted a very specific kind of movie. I wanted a movie that like maybe I'd seen before, or if I hadn't seen it before, it was not overly complicated. I had a very clear sense of what was happening. It was engaging. It was efficient. It was like competently made. I wasn't going to be annoyed that it was bad. Um, and that I could sort of like gather what was happening without needing to pick, you know, it couldn't be like a, no subtitles, you know, I'm not going to watch Bergman on, on two hours of <laughs> sleep. And what I ended up watching was these movies 
that were basically, I think of as sort of classics of my childhood, um, which are movies that star guys like Harrison Ford, uh, who play, you know, some version of lawyer, uh, you know, government drone, um, who gets caught up in some bigger conspiracy or terrorist attack or something like that, maybe falsely accused of something. Um, and over the course of about 90 minutes to two hours and very rarely longer than two hours, which is great, um, you know, he sort of, you know, uh, defends himself and looks stern and uh, fights off the bad guys or the conspiracy or whatever and um, and wins. And I think of these, I call these dad thrillers like, A, because I think they were sort of marketed towards dads. Like, I think that the the the, the point was to make movies that, fathers could feel like they were watching something just a little bit sophisticated um because they tend to start they tend to feature dads most of the main characters are like middle-aged guys who are family men who have like sons or daughters and see because i was a dad i was like watching it's like the first thing i maybe this was a biological imperative the first thing i thought of when i had a son was like i gotta watch some submarine movies like get, get me hunt for red october right away um, so I, I, I knew that John and Jamel were starting this podcast and, uh, and I was like, I had actually sort of in my head been like, well, maybe I'll do like a series of newsletters about each of these movies. And, um, I, uh, I was like, well, that's just going to be too close to the podcast. But I had all these thoughts. I had all this stuff in my head about, cause I'd watched so many of them noticing like parallels or whatever. So I just, I wrote sort of a, what I would, what I think I called notes towards the theory of the dad, though, which is just some like there's some diagrams in there for people who are visual learners, um, just to try to categorize as many of them as I possibly could. Um, just, just, just trying to think through the kind of themes and tropes and ideas that are going on. Yeah. And yeah, so this is piece is very clever and amusing. And yeah, you have some charts and graphs. Um, one, so one potential breakdown is, is whether the, um, the protagonist who's always a man uh, has a professional degree or does not have a professional degree. And then whether, so and whether he is an agent of the state or not an agent of the state, and you would list like eight or so movies uh, under each one and in like a four quadrant kind of thing. And yeah. And so Harrison Ford is maybe the key, um, the key person in this world. Cause he was in so many of these movies and I guess air force one is a little different because oh, yeah. he's the president, not just like the desk. So often it was the desk jockey, and and Jack, maybe the Jack Ryan stuff was the origin of that. The desk yeah. jockey who somehow is forced to go into the world of action and adventure and like use the smarts, but also like, you know, use physical violence and, and, and stuff to solve the problem. And um, and yeah, and Air Force. And so there's, you know, there's various permutations and exceptions. And you have a subcategory of movies where the president is a character and seems like a cool guy. So that'd be Air Force One, Independence Day, <laughs> Impact. And they also talk about how often these had at least a gloss of like intellectualism or sort of confronting some sort of like societal problem that America was facing in the 90s. Um, so it wasn't like a Michael Bay. It wasn't like, you know, the Michael Bay Transformers or something where it's just like, you know, spectacle on the screen and, and total nonsense. Like it, it seemed to have like a serious like a sense of seriousness about it that maybe wasn't was just like skin yeah, deep but yeah yeah there's like know. a there's like a sort of sophistication like i think I, I i do think that part of it there's a marketing aspect there where it's like you know you can imagine in a in a you can imagine it being like a date night movie like it's an action movie but there's like enough sort of political or legal or whatever sophistication to it that it feels serious in a way that maybe you could convince your significant other to watch it with you um in a way you you otherwise wouldn't um, and I think because of that too, you know, I don't, I didn't get into this super much in the piece, but this is something that Jamel and John are definitely doing on their podcast. There's, there's a lot of like interesting sort of political, uh, readings you can do of these movies. Um, especially right now, 2021, I feel like the nineties is looming very large in our imaginations, not just because there's a sort of cultural nineties revival, but just, um, trying to figure out what happened after the fall of the Soviet union that led us to this, um, and watching a movie like Air Force One, where it's, you know, this is like Air Force One in particular, I recommend people watch with an eye towards sort of 90s, the, the pathologies of 90s liberalism, because this is a movie about um, a president who gives a speech in the begin in the very beginning of the movie, gives this stirring speech that we're supposed to admire about how America is going to intervene more often in foreign affairs. Anytime there's any kind of humanitarian crisis, America is going to be there. Um, and then presents the most politically irrational um, villains I've ever seen in a movie ever. I think they're like Kazakh irredentists, but they're Russian nationalists 
too, but they're also communists. And, and they, uh, the only thing they seem to want to do is like free this one general from prison. Um, and it's just like, it's a weird inversion. It's like the movie's very similar to Die Hard because it's about you know a guy trapped on a plane trying to kill terrorists versus a guy trapped in a building trying to kill terrorists. Die Hard has this, Die Hard, which is one of my favorite movies, has this great, um, like the politics of Die Hard are really funny because it sets up the idea that you've got these German, you know, political terrorists. And it turns out they're just after the money. Like they're, it's a very Reagan movie. It's like a very 80s, like, no, no, everybody just wants money. That's what we want it to. Whereas, you know, the 90s, the, the 90s version of this is like, money's not even, they, they, they don't want to think about money. They, don't, they, they want to talk about politics. They want to be taken seriously about international politics, but there's just nothing there. It's just fluff. There's like nothing to like hold on to. It's, it's kind of this totally big thing. Gary Oldman is like great as the totally nuts. Um, you know, and Harrison Ford is great. I mean, it's a fun movie. Like, I don't, I don't mean to like come on and be like, you know, don't watch. You know, Air Force One is politically evil. It's fucking great. It rules. Um, but it's just really funny to sort of watch it from the perspective of 2021 and be like, is that really what like Hollywood thought Americans wanted politics to be? What American politics were? Like, what is that? What they thought was going on? Um, it's uh, you know, another you know, another movie actually that's a little bit on the outside of this category but i also really love it has a sort of also has this sort of interesting thing is contact um where jodie foster um like maybe receives a signal from aliens and maybe travels to visit those aliens it's like a lot of stuff about it feels very much like a movie about a country wrestling with it's with a uh, kind of a post-historical state where there's no um, massive national enemy or ideological enemy to be waging war against um and the way these kinds of 90s ideas leak out into what are, in general, like very well-made, very entertaining, like extremely competent Hollywood products. And I say, like I say that because it's like, compared to the kind of stuff you get on Netflix these days, you know, these sort of half-made streaming things that are there to be watched while you're on your phone. Like these are very, these are very like proper movies um, to watch them try to wrestle with what we can now identify as uh, like historically specific such historically specific problems is a is a is an interesting intellectual exercise on top of getting to watch harrison ford shoot people and you know jump out of planes and all the good stuff yeah um so uh, yeah people should definitely check out this piece if if um this conversation is as interested them at all and yeah there's plenty yeah plenty to discuss here and yeah actually i i started listening to Jamel and uh, John's podcast, but then they're at one point they were like, "If you haven't seen, um, oh god, what is what is the first movie they they do the submarine movie?" Um, uh, oh, Hunt for Red October. Yeah, if you haven't seen Hunt for Red October in a long time, like you should really pause and and rewatch it before listening to this. And I was like, I don't think I've seen that since high school, and maybe I didn't even see the entire thing at, at that point because I, I had almost no <laughs> memory of of the characters they're talking about. So I was like, okay, I, I guess I'll, yeah. I'll rewatch Hunt for Red October before I listen to the rest of this podcast. Um, and yeah, contact, the contact is an interesting one. Actually, over the summer, I, I got into blank the blank check podcast with which I know Jamel has been on mm -hmm. um, where they they were doing the review, the filmographies of various directors who had like an early hit and then were given like free reign to do whatever they wanted. And so they were doing Zemeckis and they thought the, the, the episode on contact mm -hmm. was was very interesting and maybe you want to rewatch it. Um, and I haven't rewatched it yet, but yeah, the, like it had, you know, sort of the, the fact that there was like, you know, the in the many movies from, you know, before 1989, the villain was like the Soviets, the commies or something. And then that ended. And then so what was the threat? Who was the villain? And maybe it needed to come, you know, uh, something from uh, outer, you know, like outer space or some a different civilization or something would be the threat. Or it was often, yeah, these like rogue terrorists or someone who was like an ex, uh, you know, something or other in the soviet union and then was like a renegade and had their own like thing right <laughs> thing to axe to grind and a lot of stuff with like an ira um someone like doing a bad irish accent that's another thing you identify as there's a lot of there's a lot of um this the the, the designer david rudnick came up with this this word nokia core to describe this set of movies that i think are all basically dad thrillers which is like ronin the first mission impossible the peacemaker which are basically all movies about like nukes getting passed around Eastern Europe and, and like guys in Eastern Europe in like black markets for nukes, which, which was obviously a, a, some level of cultural and political anxiety at the time that there would, you know, that some, that some former Soviet country would, would let a nuke fall into the hands of say the IRA or whoever. Um, these are the, these are your bad guys in that case are always like shady 
terrorist guys or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and where the it's un yeah, what is the the motivation of the bad guys since they no longer believe in the triumph of you know Marxist Leninism? What is you know what are, are they doing it for? It's actually some financial scam yeah. or something or or what exactly? Right. Um, and then you I, you do talk a little bit about sort of like oh yeah what happened to the death or you talk a little bit about why this ended and 9-11 would be one reason um, where suddenly there was, once again, this actual external threat, not like, you know, a washed up, you know, a Kazakh terrorist or something. Um, and then I guess, you know, various other reasons why movies changed. And um, and yeah, so I, I, I highly recommend this piece um, for for anyone. And it's I think people who have stuck with the show I'm often like interested in the way like culture shape like materialism shapes culture and yeah just like this uh lines up with my interest so yeah highly recommended um okay anything else thank you you want to say or plug or no um I I, I no I mean just the the, the newsletter maxread.substack.com um please it's it's all currently free I'm going to start introducing paid stuff next year but uh for now um see if you like it I hope that people do yeah, so read Max by Max Reed, maxreed.substacks.com. Check it out. Uh, you know, um, uh, this is uh, this is a, a podcast which also exists. Uh, you know, online it is is something you could subscribe to or rate and review or smash that button doing something or other, um, and that is all appreciated or whatever. Um, so, <laughs> so Max, thanks for coming back on, and uh, thanks to our viewers and listeners. Yeah, and we'll see you again next time.